John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 20. If uh, you have the Bible that was in the seat, uh, that's page 745, I believe, or you can scroll on your phone. As you were uh, pulling that up, I just want to thank you for having me this morning. I've uh, been encouraged since I've been here. Thank you for your hospitality. Um, Miss, uh, Miss Sharon kind of took me back this morning. She talked about flannel boards. I don't know if you guys remember that, uh, but in Sunday school, they used to have uh, like characters that were punched out on like this piece of paper and you used to stick them to the flannel board. And that's how we learned uh, different Bible stories. So uh, she took me back this morning and uh, I forgot that I even remembered that until she said it. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a good memory. Um, I appreciate uh, the young lady here. What's your name, ma'am, who's doing the slides? Oh, her. <laughs> Bella. Yeah, Bella. I heard her ask her dad if she could uh, do the slides this morning, and she was just uh, overjoyed to serve uh, this morning. So uh, definitely thankful for that as well, and thankful for the work that you're doing uh, at this church and in this community. Uh, so let's go ahead and, uh, and dive in. John chapter 12, verse 20. And it reads, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. God, thank you for our time here together this morning. Thank you for uh, just a service so far and us uh, making much of you as we uh, sing songs to you. God, I pray that the truth of uh, the song that we just sang, It Is Well, will reign truth and bear fruit in our lives. Our sin, not in part, but all of it has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. God, I pray that you will be with me this morning. I pray that I'll make much of you. God, I pray uh, that, um, that we'll all see ourselves in this story and I pray that we'll repent of any sins that we may have and turn to a savior who has his arms wide open. In your son, Jesus name I pray, amen. Uh, kind of fitting that we uh, that we sang. Um, I know it as Creed. I think it's I believe uh, by Hillsong. Uh, creeds were um, written in in the early church to state what the church believed about Jesus, about God, and about about the Bible. And one of the other effective ways of of teaching new Christians, uh, new converts, or even children the truths about the Bible and God and Jesus were through something uh, something called catechisms catechisms are anybody familiar with catechisms all right so if you're not catechisms are um, 
typically a, a set of questions and they have uh, the answers uh, to them. So over the, the years, there have been different catechisms that have been written. And in the 1500s, uh, there was a catechism that was written called the Heidelberg Catechism. It was uh, uh, published, uh, and it has its roots in Germany. The first question in this catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That's the, the question that I, that I pose to you this morning. What is your only comfort in life and death? Now, with that said, let's walk through some things that have happened before now that has uh, brought us to this point. So in, in John chapter 12, uh, we have uh, a couple of days before the Passover, Jesus came to this town called Bethany. And he was eating lunch uh, with a guy by the name of Lazarus here. Now, if you remember Lazarus, uh, Jesus, he was dead. Um, and Jesus performed one of his mir- miracles by raising Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus was dead, uh, I think, uh, during that time. There was a certain time frame where someone was just, they were dead. Like, that was it. There was no coming back for him. And Jesus actually raised Lazarus after that time. Um, and I think that was to, to, to prove the, the power that he had as uh, the son of God. So um, he's eating uh, lunch with Lazarus and and uh, Mary is actually preparing Jesus for death by uh, putting this ointment on him. Um, as we go on, there was a plan uh, to kill Lazarus because he was going around and, and uh, just him being seen. People knew the story. You know, people talked in as well, like they do now, gossiping or just telling stuff. Uh, and so uh, his presence alone was making people turn away from their sins and, and turn into Jesus. And so what did the people do who hated uh, Jesus and who hated Christianity at that time, they wanted to kill Lazarus. So Lazarus was going to die again. Um, you kind of feel bad for Lazarus, right? Like you just came back from the dead and they want to kill you again. Um, and so uh, so that's going on. And so Jesus comes into the city and he makes his, his triumphal entrance into the city and they yell Hosanna and they throw down the palm leaves. And uh, you know the story. This is what we celebrate around Easter time. Uh, leading up to Easter. And now um, we uh, come to verse 20. And I'll say this just to kind of set things up. Uh, Lazarus' death and resurrection was a foreshadow of Jesus's own death and resurrection, right? So that wasn't something that was just happenstance. That wasn't something that just so happened to happen. It wasn't just random, but it was actually a foreshadow of what Jesus himself would do. And the fact that it was uh, around Passover wasn't a coincidence either. Now, this is actually, uh, I believe, the third Passover that's mentioned in the book of John. So the fact that Jesus uh, was on the scene during the Passover uh, was not a coincidence either. Now, if I were to go back during this time and ask some Jews during this time, the question that I posed to you earlier, the question, the very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your uh, comfort in life and in death? The answer would probably go something like this. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, faultless. Now, these are actually the words of the Apostle Paul. 
He kind of gives us the blueprint of how the Jews viewed themselves. As you heard, his confidence was in his flesh and not just his works, but his actual flesh. You see, Jews were God's chosen people and they boasted in that. And their arrogance was problematic all throughout the scripture, especially in the New Testament. So according to our passage today, there were some Greeks who came to see Jesus. They ran to Philip and made their request known to him. Now, if you notice, Philip didn't go directly to Jesus, did he? He grabbed Andrew first. Now, it's possible that he did this, and he was a bit hesitant to go to Jesus because of what Jesus told them earlier. Jesus in Matthew 10 said, Do not go onto the road of the Gentiles or enter into any towns of the Samaritans. Go rather to the, light, the, lost, ship, the lost sheep of Israel. When the Canaanite woman came to Jesus on behalf of her demon-possessed child, Jesus told her, and I quote, I was sent only to the lost sheep in the house of Israel. Raise your hand if you can say without a shadow of doubt, with 153% certainty that you are Jewish. a good question are we all jewish houston we have a problem a couple weeks ago i was on facebook and my my friend uh made a status um and the status said show me someone who actually believes that jesus was white so that was a, a a common belief especially uh, in, in the 70s uh, that t- uh, typically depicted Jesus as white, all right? This is not awkward for me, guys, by the way. This is all right. Uh, it's okay. Uh, but, <laughs> but we've seen the pictures, right? We see this, uh, this white guy who has this beautiful, beautifully pressed perm, you know, with blonde hair, and it's all flowing and all pretty and cute, and he has these blue eyes and these, you know, uh, uh, he just looks amazing. He looks like a, a model. Right. And so uh, as being a black Christian, one of the things that I'm often uh, one of the reasons that I'm criticized for being a Christian is that we're following this white Jesus because this is who is depicted. So um, anyway, being the good friend that I am and being the controversial person that I am, I share the status. Right. Um, and, 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 and it was going well because historically speaking, um, we know that Jesus was not white. He was mil- from the Middle East, so he had a darker skin complexion, right? So that's not something uh, that we actually believe. So anyway, the, 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 it's going well. People are liking it and, you know, whatever. And this girl, one of my uh, friends from college, she comments on it, uh, and she basically says that salvation is only for Jewish people. And she uses the scriptures uh, that I just said, that I just quoted, that Jesus said, and um, as 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 proof of her belief. Um, now, b- before I dive into that, uh, let me say this. There have been some horrible things that have been done in the name of Jesus. Right. Everything from slavery, from different types of oppression, from, you know, injustices. We can name all kind of things that um, have been done in the name of Jesus that did not actually reflect him. So in a sense, while it's we can easily um, we can easily. Uh, laugh at and mock 
while people are saying that we're crazy, crazy for believing in Christianity. At the same time, we can kind of understand like where they're coming from. Right. And this is where it takes time to just sit down with someone, bear with them and say, hey, this is why I believe what I believe. But anyway, the status uh, was going well. So the question is, did God only come for Jewish people and salvation only for Jewish people? My man's in the back is shaking his head. No, right now. No way. Um, Which I would absolutely agree with that. So Philip and Andrew make their way to Jesus and tells him that some Greeks are wanting to talk to him. Jesus didn't respond directly to their request, but says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Once again, is salvation only for ethnic Israel? Absolutely not. Both Paul and Jesus deal with this. Jesus said straight up that he had sheep that were not in his fold. Those sheep that he was referring to are the Gentiles. Spoke, Paul spoke about a great mystery in his writings. He said, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. There was a mysteriousness about the gospel of Jesus that was present in the minds of everyone, even those who believed in him. What then is this mystery of Christ? One theologian says that it is the full membership of partakers of the same great. I'm sorry. um, It is a full membership of Gentiles and the people of God. The Jews do not have solitary privilege of access to the kingdom. Gentiles are fellow heirs and full members in the same body, the church and partakers of the same great promises. This is why we see so many issues between the Gentiles and the Jews all throughout scriptures. The Jews were coming from their place of privilege. And the Gentiles were just so happy to be around and to be in the number. They were eating all kind of pork, uh, participating in uh, liberties that the Jews stayed away from. Paul says it like this. Here is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In another book, he says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When those Greeks were seeking Jesus, it was a sign that it was time for Jesus to face what he had come on earth to do. Now, this is something that we can take uh, from this. Greeks sought Jesus, the people who uh, salvation uh, came to secondly, according to Romans 1, verse 16, they're seeking Jesus. In other words, people who were unlikely to seek Jesus were searching for Jesus, or the people who could have been uncomely, or, or people who were second-class citizens in the time that we are looking at here, people who had been oppressed. What does that say about us today? There can be people and are people who you wouldn't expect to come to Christ, um, who we should be sharing the gospel with, and preaching the gospel with. It's just kind of like a secondary uh, point of that. So once again, when those Greeks were seeking Jesus, it was a sign that it was time for Jesus to face what he had come on earth to do. And what did he come on earth to do? Let's consider his response to Philip and Andrew. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The awaited, longed for hour has finally come. Now, you saw this hour being spoke of back at the wedding in, in Cana, right? 
So this was the wedding reception. The best friend's bride had caught the bouquet already. Uh, the groom tossed the garter belt to her boyfriend because he's about to propose to her in a couple months. So they just wanted to set it up. That's actually what happened with uh, my wife and I. Somebody threw her the bouquet and they gave me the uh, garter. So that's a cute story. Um, and they're uh, all dancing. They're drinking wine. They're doing the cha-cha slide and the cotton eye Joe. They're just, you know, having fun, right? Uh, and then all of a sudden, the unthinkable happens. They, they run out of wine. And what happens? G- uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, comes out and she says, Jesus, they run out of wine. And Jesus responded, saying that, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. In chapter 7, uh, the Feast of Booths, it was happening in Judea, but Jesus didn't go because the Jews were wanting to kill him. The people around him were trying to get Jesus to go, and he tells them twice, you go up to the feast. I am going, uh, I'm not going, for my time has fully has not fully come yet. When he was preaching in the temple and, and alluded to the fact that he was the Christ, and they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So what is this hour? In the Gospel of John, this hour refers to the death of Christ. Now, quick note on this. This testifies to a God that is in control and allows for things to happen on his timing. There were plenty of opportunities for officials and for the Jews to seize Jesus, but it didn't happen because it wasn't time to do that yet. So we must trust God's timing even when we think we know better. I, in my spare time, uh, drive for Lyft, the, 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 the car service. Don't go with Uber, go with Lyft. Um, Lyft had this uh, driver signing bonus. Uh, so when you uh, signed up to drive with them, you had to complete 200 rides by, uh, my date was February 7th. And um, once you complete these rides, I get a um, $700 bonus. So um, it's February 6th. These rides are due by February 7th. I have five rides left to get. So I'm picking my wife up from work, and uh, I'm, I'm, we're down in the city. She works uh, on the east side, right over by Hopkins at uh, William Packer Elementary School. And so um, anyway, I'm turning on to 83, and uh, I'm at a light, so... Two cars in front of me, right in, at, at the front of the light, in front of the line, was this, this white truck. And uh, the light turns green, or the arrow turns green for, for, for us to turn. And a couple of cars, or the car in front of me, honked at the truck. Um, so I'm assuming that he wasn't paying attention, maybe on his phone, whatever. So we turn on to, to 83, and um, I uh, go around this truck, and then I get back in the middle lane. And I'm, I'm talking with my wife, and I said, hey, I should be home around nine o'clock tonight, I'm gonna knock these five rides out. Um, she says, okay. She says, do you see this, the traffic uh, slowing down right here? Um, I say, yeah, but I wish I would have saw it earlier. Boom! Walk you up then. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was rear-ended, we were rear-ended uh, on a hit and run. Pushed the trunk into the back seat, knocked the back window out. Uh, I ran, uh, he pushed me into the median uh, my car is our, our car keeps saying our car is uh, totaled, uh, 
And the first thing I thought about was, how am I supposed to get these rides now? (laughs) Um, I was concerned about my wife's safety as well. (laughs) But five rides away uh, from getting money that, you know, honestly, we need (laughs) and, and that I was looking forward to. And I was at the urgent care with my friend who took us uh, there that night. And I told him, I said, you know, uh, we do make much of Christ and we do believe that God is in control. We believe that the scriptures clearly teach that that God is in control and uh, believes that God keeps us from certain things. But I have to be consistent. Right. So God and his sovereignty allowed for this to happen as well. Now, I have absolutely no idea why. Uh, as life has been happening since then, uh, there are things that have been happening that kind of somewhat make sense. Like, oh, man, like I can see how this was actually helpful. But uh, the point is, God is in control. He was in control of that situation. He was in control where uh, they didn't he didn't let people lay hands on Jesus because his time had not come yet. But now we see where his time has come. So God is sovereign over everything and everything happens in his timing, even when we don't understand. And so it is with the son of man. Jesus says that his time or his hour has come to be glorified. What a unique choice of words, right? This glorification that Jesus is speaking about is death. Now let's walk through this. Everything about Jesus's death was embarrassing. Even the moments that led up to it, he was beaten in front of crowds to the point that his skin ripped off with every hit. He was forced to carry his own cross to its death plot, got spat on, beard pulled, and hung on the cross on a hill for everyone to see. He was mocked and ridiculed while he helplessly hanged, suffocating on a cross. Most of his closest friends dipped out on him. You see, we would naturally call something like that embarrassing and shameful. We would typically say that he took an L or he took a loss on that one. But what what does Jesus call it? Glorification. You see, Jesus was not glorified despite the cross, but he was glorified through the cross. This is why he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him and is now seated at the right hand of God. So how fitting is it for this to be followed up by his next words? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, something has to die in order for life to happen. Now, consider our great, 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 grandparents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, right? God told them, eat from any tree in this garden, except for this one. Because when you eat of this one, you will surely die. And which tree did they eat from? This one, right? Now, did they die in that moment? Did they die a physical death? No, they did die a spiritual death. Right. So as the story goes, they realize that they're naked and they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. Right. So God finds them and uh, he curses everyone involved, the man, the woman and the serpent included. And what does he do at the end of the story? Do they get to stay in the garden? Nah, they got to leave. But what happens before God kicks them out of the garden? Adam and Eve, what do you have on right now? 
It was fig leaves. And he gave them a cloth or a skin of an animal. In other words, God killed something to cover their sins, to cover their shame, something that was acceptable to him. From the very beginning, God was showing us that he provides what he accepts. Even in the garden, he was foreshadowing Jesus to come. And this is why we have the sacrifices that are happening in the book of Exodus and all throughout the Old Testament. In order for something to live, something had to die. Does that make sense? It's all throughout the Bible. We see this same thing repeated. Now, the faith that we belong to, Christianity, is a paradox. That's what we gather from verses like whoever loses his or whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The upside down uh, kingdom or parabola or oxymoron, it seems contradictory because elsewhere we see that for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. God uses the weak things of the world to put the strong to shame. You Think about the Titanic, this big, massive ship that was beautiful and was stopped or sank because because of an iceberg. And what happened? Who came or what? came to rescue those people. There were smaller boats that came, right? God using small things to uh, redeem those things that are are bigger or those things that are foolish or however you want to say it. Now, this is uh, what Jesus is saying here. There is nothing in this world that can save you, literally. The young rich ruler experienced this. It's costly for us to follow Christ. As one saying goes, salvation is free, but it costs you everything. Now, Jesus wasn't concerned much about his safety as he was concerned about us and his mission. Martyrs weren't concerned about their safety as much as they were as much as they were concerned about making much of Christ. And all of this stuff can look different. Uh, contextually, right? So uh, in my church, uh, the Garden Church, we're in West Baltimore. Um, not not really the top 10 safest places to live uh, in the country and <laughs> in uh, the city. And one thing, my, my wife and I got married in June and uh, she visited a couple of times. Did you guys get married in June as well? Congratulations. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that, that we talked about. And I simply explained to her um, yes, you know, it, it can be dangerous. No, it's not the safest, but people here need to see the gospel lived out and we need to make much of Christ uh, while we're here. And because she loves her husband and she loves Jesus, she's here. Um, what does that look like to, to, to hang on to things loosely in other contexts? Uh, I think sometimes people can make much of, of money Sometimes people literally depend on money to, to, to save them and they're investing everything um, in, in, in status and in, uh, things that they have accomplished in life. And Jesus says that whatever you try, whenever you try to save your life, you will actually lose it, lose it. So it actually does all of us well to think of ways that we could be trying to, to save things or hold on to things because that does not grant us eternal life, but trusting in Christ does give us eternal life. So we have to hold on to these things in this world loosely because 
they are not eternal. It goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now, what do you think? My man's here uh, that I woke up earlier. What's your name? What's your name? Tyler. Tyler, what grade are you in? Fifth. Now, Tyler, if there was a class called Spanish 2, what class do you think you would have to take before Spanish 2? The dude is a genius. <laughs> the man is a genius. This is what we call Tyler, Bella, and what's your name? Josh, this is what we call a prerequisite, right? This is something that has to be done in, uh, before something else to take that something else. So in order to take Spanish 2, you have to take Spanish 1. You know what the prerequisite for salvation and for Christianity is? Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's the very first thing that we're told. Jesus tells us from the very beginning, hey, if you're going to do this, this is going to be costly. You must take up your cross. You must crucify yourself. You must put to, to death things that are in you and you must follow me. Now, uh, I'll end on this note. And it's relating to when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. At my wife's school, there is a painting that hangs on the wall outside of her classroom. And on this painting, there is, uh, working from left to right, there is a family that's reading. Uh, beside them is this girl who looks like she's playing a flute. Uh, beside this girl are two other girls. One has uh, a net in her hand and the other has a bag in her hand. So I'm guessing they're like catching, catching butterflies or something like that, I'm assuming. And so uh, over them, is uh, this person that's pouring a, what do you call the big jug that has water in it that you use to water gardens? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that was a watering can. <laughs> and, and on this watering can um, are the words, wet love souls, love grows. Now, we can try to sit here and interpret what this author was trying to communicate and what this painting means to you and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, but I think the reality is that no one has embodied this quote like Jesus has, right? What love souls love grows. By his mere existence, Jesus is love. He didn't have to earn this trait. He just is. Once again, I've been married for about eight months and I'm still working on different ways to pursue my wife and, and, and to woo her and to love her and to, to gain her trust so that she knows that I love her. Now, sometimes I'm successful at this and sometimes I drop the ball. You've been married for eight months, so you drop the ball, too. OK. <laughs> now, here's a difference between us. And between Jesus, by nature, Jesus is love. By nature, we're sinful. Jesus is always concerned about others. I'm always concerned about myself. Even my good acts at times can be stained with selfishness and sin because I'm wanting to feel good about myself when I'm doing good for other people. Jesus laid his life down. I'm in the business of self-preservation. 
I can look for ways to try to hold on to what I can. Jesus not only forgives, but restores those whom he has forgiven. I'm slow to forgive someone if they hurt me badly. I absolutely love this story about Peter. First off, I can relate to Peter. He was a firecracker. You never knew what was coming out of his mouth. Um, and he was down to ride for his boys. Right now, don't get me wrong. He, he dropped the ball a lot. He was bound to say something that was off. Like when Peter said something, you kind of looking like, oh, gosh, what is he about to say? Right. Um, and then you're kind of looking at him with complete confusion because one moment he's saying something groundbreaking like you are the Christ. And the next thing you know, he's getting called Satan. Right. Um, the dude had to commit the worst sin ever. Now, I know that we're not to like rank sins because all all sin is sin in God's eyes. Right. But when we're talking about something that's like completely offensive. Peter had to commit one of the worst sins ever. He denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times. Now, one would be justified in thinking, oh, man, it's over. There is no coming back from that. Peter wasn't just a disciple. Peter was Jesus's right hand man. Even in Jesus's inner circle, he was in that inner circle. Whenever Jesus took three people with him, Peter was one of the three. When Jesus was walking on water out of all folk, who did he call to come out and walk on water? There you go. Thank you. Upon whose confession did Christ say that he will build his church, his bride on? Peter, right? How can Peter bounce back from that? You remember the story. Jesus goes to Peter and asks him if he loved him three times, and he told him to feed my sheep. He restored Peter. Now, those of us who actually sin can relate to that. Those of you who have been overwhelmed with guilt can relate to that. Those of us who feel decommissioned after sinning can relate to that. Please be aware that this has absolutely nothing to do with you. Your salvation has absolutely nothing to do with you, and it never hasn't. I know that before you sinned, you were doing well, praying, attending church, participating, singing aloud, doing your devotions and encouraging people. And when you sinned, you just thought it was over. At this point, may I remind you of the gospel that we have been saved because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We have been made righteous by his blood and by his death. We bear fruit because the sinless Savior died for us and it was his pleasure to do so. Jesus wasn't just rolling the dice and trying, taking a chance, trying to purchase us, but it was his mission all along from what we call eternity past or way back when before the world even existed. He had this plan in mind. May you find hope in these words. You're much worse than what you think you are, and God loves you more than you can even imagine. I'll end off by answering uh, the question that I asked earlier. What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. This is why we sing in the, son, in the song, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So he has paid 
fully paid all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Why? Because God is in control, right? God is sovereign. God is overlooking us because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Brothers and sisters, may you find hope and that you are not your own and you belong to Christ and Christ will keep you because Christ was the seed that died and Christ is the seed that bears fruit in our life. Amen.